This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. As we come to the scriptures this morning, turn to 1 John. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And as you turn there, I want to kind of set us up. In the past 20 years, the fascination with ancestry has become popular again. It would seem like as soon as as DSL internet became a thing, we got past the of dial-up, there became this fascination with ancestry again, which is great because by and large, we are a people that are dissected and divorced from our legacies and our heritages here in America. There are services now that will take your DNA, they'll show you where your ancestry came from and came from and start tracing this. And I just want to share with you, I did this. I've been told my whole life, Jacob and I were joking about this yesterday. I've been told my whole life, oh, your your great grandma, she is full blood Cherokee Indian. Should have seen her cheekbones. Zero. Zero uh, Indian. Zero Native American in me. Don't know where they came up with that. She probably just sit in the sun a lot and got tan. But you know what I do have? I'm going to move to California whenever they start doing the reparations thing because I'm 1-100th North African. All right? And you know who else was from North Africa? St. Augustine. And he had an illegitimate son. So I'm saying that I am of the line of St. Augustine. He was known as the bishop from Hippo. So you got called me bishop, right? Bishop of Silver City. All right? Oh, we do it, right? We've done this. How many of y'all have done something like that? There's a, all right, just three people. All right, that's embarrassing. So uh, th- these family trees, tracing our lineage back, they're fascinating. I- I've seen a-, a big old family tree in a book that my great-grandmother did one time, and it's beautiful, and it's, it takes a lot of work. But have you ever thought, stopped and thought to think of why lineage became converted into a tree? Why not just write things down? Why do we call them family trees? And while I didn't research the answer to that, I want to tell you that this is why. Humanity, even in its rebellion, knows that we are all connected to a tree. Humanity, even in its rebellion, knows within its heart of hearts that we are all connected to a tree. And this morning, the scriptures are going to show us two trees. We're going to see two trees this morning, two family trees. And wouldn't you know it, that every single person upon this earth, every single person in this room today is a part of one of these two trees. The first tree is a tree shaped like a cross with a thousand generations of branches grafted into it, bearing fruit day by day, month by month, year after year, a tree of life because the planter of it went to a tree of death. That's the first tree. 
second tree is a skinny tree with a thousand generation of branches pruned off and others still upon it rotten and dead. It's a dead tree that gives the appearance of life. The bark is still intact and nice, but inside it is hollow and rotten. And its shape is skinny and twisted like a serpent. And the top of the tree droops over and looks like the crushed head of a snake. Today, we get to see the spiritual DNA test of ourselves and see which family tree that we belong to. Would it be, dear listener, would it be that we all in this place and those listening would be a part of the tree of the cross that bears fruit? 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We think that it is alive and active, that it is timeless and timely. And so we pray that the word would do the work this morning. God, would you get me out of the way? Would Christ be exalted? And would your scriptures be that implanted word that goes into fertile soil? God, would you soften our hearts today for your glory and our benefit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to this section of 1 John, it would be beneficial for us to kind of recap where we are. We're, we're deep into enemy territory here, if you're thinking that way, right? Way deep into this thing. 1 John is a self-examination to see whether we are truly in the faith. It's a self-examination tract or treaty almost to see if we're a Christian. John's original audience was being led astray by false teachers who were teaching this pre-Gnostic, secret knowledge, kind of Illuminati-style stuff that involved sinlessness. There's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as needing a sacrifice, all of these things. And you can do whatever you want, live however you want, indulge in whatever you want, and there's no ramifications. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? In the previous section, there were two main thoughts that were massively important to understand that we have to keep carrying forward with us throughout the rest of 1 John. Those who go out from the church, which is God's people, the church are God's people, those who depart from the church and live in a manner opposite of what the scriptures teach are anti-Christ, literally against Christ, hating him. And they are not the ones that we listen to. Secondly, in the previous section, John stressed the gravity of righteousness and desiring to be holy since the first coming of Christ showed Jesus to be righteous and holy. Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2. And his second coming for his people 
will make them just as he is. Remember talking about that last week? Throughout this series of self-examinating questions, there has been a lot of talk of sin. Has there not? We need to walk from sin, walk in the light, all these things. We've been talking about sin. And for those of of you that have been with us the entire time, these questions concerning sin and the forgiveness of it have almost become an aside, just presumptuous. And everyone who has ever been in an argument knows that 90% of arguments start with miscommunications and presumptions. This morning, we are going to be asking ourselves the next self-examination question. Here it is, right up front, big, bold letters. You ready? Billboard. Do I understand what sin is? I'll put it in the, the second person for you. Do you understand what sin is? Last week, we ended with 1 John 3, 2 through 3. That's a lot of numbers to say. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. I want to read this in context because it really helps frame up where we are this morning. Beloved, dear ones, we are God's children when? Now. And and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is. Beloved, my dear ones, we are God's children now. The restoration of Eden has begun now for the believer. Fellowship with God has been restored now. Eternal life has been uh, begun now, all because of the person and work of the Son of God, our big brother, the righteous advocate and Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yes, struggle. Yes, we are becoming more and more like our righteous big brother Jesus, as John has told us, walking in the light as he is in the light, becoming holy, not perfect in this life, but fully like Jesus is without spot or blemish when he appears the second time, either in his second advent or when we stand before him in glory in our death. The map. This truth This is our great hope and confidence that our loving Father, our loving Father would love us and bestow upon us the very name child of God and would never leave us nor forsake us, but would continually draw his people unto himself that he would not say, you come up here, but that God himself would condescend into the bushes to call us out and clothe us in his own righteousness. Because of this hope, because of this joyful hope, everyone who purifies himself, meaning living according to God's gracious standard containing his spirit-inspired word, everyone who purifies himself is proving to be a child of God because that person is desiring to look like their father who has given them the new birth, to walk, to live, to talk, to act like children of God, perfectly portrayed in the perfect person and example, son of Jesus. 
That's our mission. That's our hope. That's our confidence. This is the great hope that comes before this section that's a little abrasive. 1 John 3, 4, if we just kind of plop right in and forget about all this stuff, seems to be abrupt. Woo, everyone who sins is lawless. In context, we see what John is setting up for us. He's getting us to start thinking about our actions and our lives. So let's reread 1 John 3, 4 as we look at, at it and unpack it. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The previous section of 1 John 2, 28 through 29, and the end of verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, talked about practicing righteousness and desiring to be pure. We have that kind of inclusio sandwich of practice righteousness. He is righteous, purify himself as he is pure. They're, they were positives. Do righteousness. Be pure. Positive. Now, in typical John form, he gives us the negative side of that coin at the same point. If you are not practicing righteousness, you are practicing sin, and sin is lawlessness. Tiffy, no sugarcoating, straight to the point. There's no middle ground in there. There's no neutrality. There's no like, well, but, but some nuance. No, it's black and white. Sin is lawlessness. Everyone who sins practices lawlessness. Notice John begins this verse with everyone, pas in the Greek, or all. John is not merely concerned with the children of God now. John is setting up the clear reality that all have the ability, the natural inclination, and the will to sin. All. Everybody. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. All who make a continual practice of sinning practice lawlessness. Notice John is presupposing something here again. He's presupposing that even Christians, the very children of God, will struggle with sin in this life. He's presupposing that we will, we will still struggle with sin. He's already alluded to that in the previous section when he said, and what we shall be, we're not yet. We shall be like him. Right? John isn't concerned with remaining struggles to fight against sin. He's not concerned about that right here. John is concerned with continuing in sin as if it were no big deal, as if it did not matter. For continuing in sin, whether claiming to know God or not, is lawlessness. No middle ground, no nuance, no third wayism. Sin is lawless and all sin. Sin, sin, sin. Ready? What is sin? Good. But let's unpack that. What is, what is sin? The Westminster Shorter defines sin as this. Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, meaning sin is either rebelling against the law of God by not conforming to it or rebelling against it by intentionally breaking it. Sin of omission and commission as we think about the, the Westminster divines who framed that confession didn't make that up. Like they got in the Jerusalem Council at the Westminster Abbey where Big Ben is. It was like, well, well, hey there, let's come up with some ideas about what sin is. Because they're all British and Scottish. 
And there's the Scottish Presbyterians are like, oh, laddie, let's talk about that a little quick. Let's go to the scriptures. No. Scriptures are right there. They got this definition of sin from right here in 1 John 3, 4. Sin is what? Okay, come on. Sin is lawlessness. Don't miss this. John is presupposing something else. The existence of some sort of standard, some sort of law. What law is John talking about? The Roman law? Murphy's law? Philosophical law? Law and order? Dun, dun. John is talking about the law of God, his word embodied in his son. In essence, John is saying sin is rebellion, treason against God. Just as man was tempted in the garden unto sin, remember that the fall of man was not caused by this big primordial goopy monster of sin, like jumping out, like it was its own thing. No, the fall was caused by man being tempted to rebel against God and become his own God. Omission, commission, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Notice the text does not say sin is like lawlessness, like a simile, giving us an idea. Sin is sort of like lawlessness. Sin could be said to be like lawlessness. Sin is emphatically lawlessness. John Stott, one of my favorite commentators, says this, lawlessness is the essence of sin, not the result. That's got some gravity. Lawlessness is the essence of sin, not the result. You don't sin and then become lawless. As if you do something and then it's declared out of the Orwellian landscape on the on the, the big loudhorns, so-and-so is a, a lawless sinner now. Big brother, go get them. No, to sin is to be lawless, for lawlessness is what sin is. There's a one-to-one equation. All right, good Bible inquirers that I've taught you to be thus far, guess what? You're, you should be digging. Okay, all right, what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Okay, good. John tells us in the next verse, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Man, John is just full of presupposition this morning, isn't he? Here's another presupposition. You know that he, that, that he is Jesus here in the context of all of verses, or chapter 2 and 3, you know that Jesus appeared to take away sin. You know this. Remember, John's writing to a group of Christians. Okay, Christians, hey, you know this. Poking you on the chest. Hey, you know that Jesus appeared to take away sin. The first advent of Christ that John has spoken of in the previous section, of Christ appearing in the world, but the world knowing him not, remember, it's tied to John's definition of the world, the system that is lawless. And what is that? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. John expands and expounds upon that previous idea, saying that his audience 
emphatically, assuredly, confidently knows, you know, I'm pointing with both hands at both sides of the room, you know that Christ appeared in order to take away sin, or more literally translated, to carry off and destroy sin. Take away there, that, that little phrase, take away sin, take away in the Greek is idro, which in this context actually wants us to think of binding something up and then carry, packing it off to destroy it. Think of it like this, finding a bunch of sticks, binding them up, throwing them up on your shoulder as you whistle because it's so easy, and then you go throw them in the fire pit. That's what take away in the Greek here is wanting us to have the connotation of. That's powerful. It's direct. It is destruction. Not only that, but Jesus is sinless. There is no sin in Jesus. He is sinless, perfect son of God, the perfect representation of the father, the image of the invisible in whom the fullness of deity dwells in perfectly. And we've heard this take away word here once before. Garrett even mentioned it this morning. That's why I love God's providence. We didn't even plan this. First, or I'm sorry, John 1, 29, John the Baptist seeing Jesus walking towards him, says what? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Not just, okay, well, I'll take you away over here. Takes it away, binds it up, destroys it. Destroys it. The Lamb of God who binds up sin and takes it away to be destroyed. Can you sense what John is conveying to us right here? It's pretty edgy, actually. And it's really controversial in our total tolerance uh, coexist Subaru bumper sticker culture. If someone claims to be in Christ, but persistently and continually sins by either making excuse for it or by flat out denying that what they're doing is sin, an attitude of indifference, John is saying that Christ will carry that person off destroy them. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. The righteous king ruling and reigning, crushing every enemy under his feet. For the Son of God came first as a lamb, a prophet, a priest, a king, and shall come back as a judge, judge of both the righteous and the rebel. If we are to be doing righteousness as he is righteous, 1 John 2, 28. Then to remain and persist in sin continually, do you know what that is? That is lying about God, saying, this is what he's like. I'm a child of God. I'm in that family. This is what we do. Sweet, bro. Get in on this sinfulness action. It's what we do. I'm an image bearer of God. I'm reflecting it. This is what my God's like. We lie. When we habitually, continually, persistently sin and do not care, we lie about who our God is. You realize the seriousness of what John is saying in these little pithy statements? You realize the, the gravity of this? That our sin shows the world a lie about God. Can you imagine the 
your children, for some god-awful reason, had to go to public school. And they went in every day and said, my dad beats me in the head with a hammer every single day I go home. What would happen? CPS would be at the door before you could even breathe and say, you know, him buck two. Don't beat my kids. Eli, serious, no beating around the bush, no eight-syllable words here that only a couple people understand. John, straight to the point, Jesus appeared, dear listener, to destroy sin, not to condone it. Jesus appeared to destroy sin, not condone it, not to get in on it, not to approve of it, not to applaud it, not to wave a flag about it. But Jesus ate with prostitutes and drunkards and the worst of people. Haven't you read the scriptures, Pastor? Yes, indeed I have. And yes, he did. But you know what he never did? He never left them there. He never told them that it was fine for them to keep doing that. You know, one of the writers of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit used was a guy named Matthew. His Jewish name was Levi. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were thieves. And Jesus came to this thief on the Sea of Galilee and said, Hey, Matthew, hey, Levi, follow me. Put it all behind. Follow me. He did not come to him and say, It's not a big deal. I'll come to you. I'd like to disciple you if that's okay with you. When it's convenient, don't charge him too much extra. Stop what you're doing. Leave all of that junk behind. Follow me. Walk out of the old into the true new, yet old at the same time. John continues this thought in verse 6 of chapter 3 this morning. Listen to this. No one who abides, there's our word abide, no one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. How, How clear do we want it? We don't have to get some sort of like Nostradamus decoder ring out. That is straight to the point. No one who lives in, who remains in, who claims to be in fellowship with Christ, keeps on sinning. Do not miss the bullseye of what John is saying right here. In context, concerning God's people, proving they are such by being righteous, by loving God, by loving neighbor, neighbor, how God tells us to do in his word, all of this in context is not saying, is not, N-O-T, not saying that Christians will ever be sinless in this life. Out of context, this may lead to an idea of of what is known as sinless perfectionism. Really big in the Second Great Awakening with Charles Finney and some of the Wesley guys. Beloved, my dear ones, you all, what has John just said of few verses prior to make sure we don't land on that sinless perfectionism. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do. Look at 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, my dear ones, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. We aren't yet. 
but we shall. And when? When he appears. And what is that like? Last verse. In him there is no sin. So clear. We shall be like him without sin. What John is lovingly encouraging with us to examine ourselves with is this, is this pattern of habitual, unbothered, indifferent, cheap, grace, sin. Our text does not say, whoever sins does not know him. That's not what it says. Whoever sins. Well, my goodness, none of us do then, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, or if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God's people are sinners. You are a sinner. You are a sinner, and you will sin. But God's people will fight against it. They will seek to be pure as he is pure. If you are already perfectly pure, why are we called to an ongoing, continual purifying of ourselves? See how we're piecing this together? It's true from the scriptures. The righteous shall live by faith alone. That was Luther's verse. That's what sparked the Reformation, that single verse, and some other stuff. We are declared righteous in right standing, in restored fellowship with God because of the righteous Jesus in his perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That is how we are declared righteous. But we are called to work that out with fear and trembling. We've been graciously given that righteousness before the throne of God. Shall we squander it as the son did, lying in the pig pen, ready to eat old corn cobs? Or shall we steward it? John is calling us to realize this. The child of God will struggle against sin, will fight against it, will wage war against it. But they will never walk into it carefree like they're strolling up into Walmart. They may step in the mud, but they will never lie down in it and transform themselves into swine, which he will drive into the sea, crush them with it. Augustine famously said, remaining sin, remaining sin in the believer should never be reigning sin. Remaining sin, what we still struggle with, should never be reigning sin. Beloved, listen to me. You're going to mess up. You're going to fall short. You're going to be lawless. But if you truly know God in Christ, then you're going to know when you have done that. You're going to know. And if you truly know this, you'll, you'll be broken. You will repent. You will not continue down that little bit of an off step out of the light. The false teachers that John is combating, the antichrists, were saying, there's no sin. Who cares? Everybody's got their own truth. Everybody's got their own standard. You do you. You live your truth. All right? Who cares? Your attitude must be anti-that. 
There is one standard, God's law. There is sin. Beloved, you sin. You will fall short of God's glory, not loving him and others as you should. But the child of God boldly and reverently confesses their sin, asking for forgiveness continually. That's the ongoing purification that they may become more and more like Christ, knowing you know this with confident hope that they will be free from sin and perfect as he is perfect when they stand before him in glory. That's our hope. That's our confidence. Thank you, someone. Why are we so ashamed still? Why do we let ourselves be lulled so often into a false sense of security? Of, does it matter? No. Sin is a big deal. Your thought process should not be, sin isn't a big deal. Jesus paid it all. We sang it this morning. So I'm going to sin. He'll forgive me anyway. I go to church. I pray to prayer. Forgive me. Christian, you will sin, but you are not condemned to that sin. You are called to realize that God is using that even for your good. Repent and believe. Walk away from it. Do not continue in it. Do not continue in it. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That sounds like bundled up and destroyed language. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits people that proclaim to be God, Christians. And he goes on to say this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, this great day of judgment, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness. Sin. God does not want your routine. God wants your heartfelt devotion and hope in him. God wants you to run from sin, to be righteous as he is righteous, and have confidence to know that when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of that lawlessness and cleanse you, and that he desires that you sin no more. Dear children, my beloved ones, my dear ones, what a gracious God, what a loving Father that He would even desire to reconcile us to Himself through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of His Son, the righteous, the sinless, the pure, in the place of sinners. What a glorious God, and what a glorious gospel. We're called to be in awe of this grace like little children. with that title that John uses so often that he progresses on in verse seven. Little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived by the world. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Little children, dear ones, don't be led astray. If you practice righteousness, you're living your life in accordance with God's law, his word in every area of your life, thinking God's thoughts after him, though you will never do that perfectly. But if your heart's song is, I love him because he first loved me, you are righteous as Christ is righteous because the righteousness you have 
and our practicing is not your own. It's, it's his skin, his justice, his righteousness is his skin that covers you just like Adam was covered with the skin of an animal after the fall, the sacrifice made by God to cover man. Jesus is your skin. Jesus is your righteousness. He's your sacrifice that was slaughtered that you may not be naked and ashamed. That's yours. Own that. Don't think that you can sin and continue in it and that it's no big deal. Dear ones, my children, you are called to the light of righteousness, not the darkness of sin. You are called in Ephesians 5.11 by Paul to expose darkness and sin, not to participate in it. For woe unto those who co light darkness and darkness light, as Isaiah 5.20 says. Let no one deceive you. No one. Because ultimately, if you are deceived into thinking like this, that you can sin and it's not a big deal, you can continue in it and it's not a big deal, that's lawlessness. And you're being deceived by the great deceiver himself. John sets up verses 8 through 10 with verse 7. He calls attention to us as children. Again, children of God, understand this black and white fact. No nuance here. No third way. Straight to the point. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason of God, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You can have your little self-professed pronouns of child of God in your Twitter bio, and while that might work in the depraved world, it's not going to work with God. If you continually sin, if you are continually rebellious, if you are continually justifying why you sin, how you sin, or that it's not really that big of a deal and have absolutely no desire to kill it, being holy as God is holy and shine his light through your, through your life and your word and your deed, dot, 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 you're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. The foe of the holy who's been sinning from the beginning and dragging man down with him. There is no third option. Do you see that? There's no, here's the children of God, and here's the children of the devil, and then here's the children of, yeah. There's no third option. The scriptures present us with a war between two patriarchies, the righteous father rule of God and the unrighteous father rule of Satan. Scriptures present us with the stark reality that the lukewarm, even jellyfish t-shirts you buy at Walmart as they profit off the Bible Belt, fundamentalists and traditionalists in the South that say, hey, you, you're a child of God and he loves you. It's a lie. There's no universal fatherhood of God. He is the father of all in a creating sense, but not in a salvific sense. Neither a child of God because your big brother has come and yanked you out of the bushes and clothed you in the robe of his righteousness or you're a child of the devil who has been fed the lie, the emperor has no clothes and you're the emperor. Which family tree is yours, beloved? 
The tree shaped like a cross because Christ went to the tree, the cross, that you may be grafted into the family tree of God and bear fruit? Is that your tree? It must be. Or is your tree anyone that's anemic and broken and rotten and looked like a splattered snake? That the head that's crushed upon that serpent tree has the perfect indentation of the nail-scarred heel of the Son of God in it. You must repent and believe. Jesus appeared to take away and destroy the essence of sin and the originator. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of Satan. The child of God cannot even think about following another father. And John, like a loving father to his people, to us through his letter, keeps repeating the same point over and over and over again because we are so often like little children who listen halfway, goes one ear and right out the other. And so he just repeats himself again. When God speaks twice, you listen. No one born of God, no one who has received the new birth of God, awakening them to their sin and calling them into restored fellowship with him makes a practice of sinning. For if so, the seed of God is not really in him. Continual, habitual, uncaring sin. God's seed is his word. Scripture attests to that. Christ himself in the parable of the sower talks about the farmer scattering seed and the seed's the word of God and it goes on various soils that either bear good crops or not. If we have truly been born of God, and his seed has been scattered into our heart as the implanted word, then we will not continually sin and have it. We will fight against it. We will hate it. We will look to Christ in the hope and with confidence that when we struggle and have momentary lapses, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us now, and that he will ultimately cleanse us fully in glory. Keep, keep thinking about the parable of the sower and the good soil. Do apple trees shoot up overnight with hundredfold bushels ready to pluck? No. It takes time. When it's really hot or rains on that little tree that isn't ripe like it's supposed to be, does the tree go, well, I'm not an apple tree, I guess? No. It takes time. Dear ones, your entire life is that time of growth. And you will bear, you will, you will bear fruits. You will bear fruit in this life. But just because the weather is stormy or it's really hot or it's really cold in your life doesn't mean you're no longer a tree in God's orchard. Dear one, hear me. If you fall into sin, confess your sins and know that you have forgiveness. None of this is to suggest that if you are practicing righteousness and fall into sin, but that you get back up and stand up and dust your feet off as you keep walking the lights, that you're a child of God no longer. Oh, you sinned. You messed up today. You're not a child of God. No, that's not what it says. I, well, I, I don't even know if I'm saved. Why? Well, because I sinned again today. So did I. Imagine that. So did I. But do you like that sin? No, I hate it. I struggle with it. I hate it. I want it to die. I'm like Paul in Romans 7. I don't know why I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do. I hate that. Good. You know what you are? You're a child of God. I don't even know if I'm saved. Why? Because I sinned today. So did I. But do you like that sin? 
yeah, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. You're probably not. You're probably not grafted into the tree of Christ. Do you see what John is laying out for us? This section right here will give the true child of God hope and confidence, not fear, zeal, not despair. In his lawlessness, and I hate it, and I want to be righteous as he is righteous, and I will struggle and I will fall, but I will not continue in it. I will follow the path of my child of God. Lift up your head and weep no more. This morning as I close, understanding sin and understanding there are two family tree options, I want to ask you one more question to take with you. Whose child are you? Child of God, child of the devil. This is not a scare tactic section of scripture. To the true born of God, born of God child believer, this section is immensely comforting. To the child, the devil. It is terrifying. Dear believer, practice righteousness. Love God. Love neighbor. Know how to do that by reading God's word and applying it to every area of life. Take care of those around you. Pray. Repent. Disciple your kids. Pass the promise on to your sons and daughters. Let the gospel of redemption ooze out of your mouth and your actions. Show you are a child of God by hating sin and running from it, not into it. The child of the devil, this text should terrify you. Your continual sin means you are continuing down a path of destruction. and You will be bound up and destroyed. Your father, the devil, has already been crushed by God, and he will crush you. Would you rather be crushed or have God's son crushed in your place? Look unto him. Look unto the serpent. Oh, but not your father crushed. The serpent raised in the wilderness when the people of God sinned in numbers and grumbled against God and God sent snakes to bite them and kill them in judgment. God told Moses to make a serpent and lift it up and that anyone who would look at that serpent would be healed. Jesus Christ is in your place, in the place of you, crushed. Who shall you follow? Choose you this day whom you will serve. In our call to worship this morning, Psalm 104 in verse 16, it said this, the trees of the Lord are abundantly watered. Yes, his tree is abundantly watered. His family tree is abundantly watered with living water and it will not wither. His leaf fadeth not. Amen. Dear believer, hate your sin. Fight against it. Do not continue. Know that when you do fall down, and that you do mess up, you have a faithful big brother, Jesus, the righteous propitiation, the payment, the crushed one in your place, that you may not be crushed. Look to him in faith. Repent of your sins. Walk in the known way. Purify yourselves as he is pure continually. But if you continue in sin, and it doesn't bother you, today should be a day where you really check yourself. Have confidence in the Lord, my dear beloved. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray.